Amen. Thanks, Aaron. Praise team. Appreciate it. It's been a good Father's Day so far. I hope it has been for you at home. We got a lot of rain, which is good. Needed that. The I recognize how much like my dad I am when I say things like, oh, we sure needed that rain. My grass is getting brown. <laughs> the old man that I'm turning into, uh, as well as, as being a homeowner now. It's been a big week, too. Morgan and I celebrated 15 years of marriage this week. Uh, that's exciting. I thought that was pretty good and pretty proud of ourselves for 15 years together as a married couple. And then I heard that today is Bobby and Dewey Dunn's 63rd anniversary. They've been married for 63 years today. So happy anniversary to Bobby and Dewey. You are relationship goals for all of us. Uh, everyone who's watching this, uh, if you want to know what relationship goals should look like, just observe uh, Bobby and Dewey done, and uh, you will see what uh, a, a healthy, beautiful, godly marriage uh, should be and look like. So thank you for the example you set for the rest of us. It's great to be back with you today. Uh, we had some, some great time off uh, last week celebrating our anniversary a little early. I didn't shave. I hope that's okay with you. Uh, we are glad to be back. Trey did a great job uh, last week um, expositing Acts chapter 5 and, and showing us what it looks like to recognize God's voice and then respond to it. And today we're going to continue on through Acts chapters 6 and all of 60 verses in chapter 7, so don't panic. I'm not going to read all of them, but we're continuing to follow the true story of the birth of the church and, and the ensuing spread of the gospel as told in the book of Acts. So we're specifically looking at passages this month that deal with uh, reckless obedience, where people are obedient to God even at great personal cost. We're talking about reckless obedience as the kind of obedience that is unflinching and unquestioning in its desire to obey the commandments of God because we believe they are best. So our text for today, again, covers a lot of ground, so I want to jump right into the story of a guy named Stephen. Stephen was one of the first deacons at First Baptist Church, Jerusalem, and uh, today we're going to do a biographical sketch of who Stephen was. When I was in seminary, we had a professor who loved Christian biographies, and he assigned us tons of them to read. And it was amazing to, to dive into the life stories of uh, Athanasius wrote Life of Antony about a monk. It was an incredible uh, ancient biography. And then we, we read Catherine Marshall's uh, biography of her late husband, Peter Marshall, and the tribute to his life as a Scottish pastor and, and as you read these stories of the heroes of the faith who've gone before us, I think the point was to hold up these people as models for us, as examples for us to emulate as young Christian leaders. If you're trying to teach someone how to shoot a basketball, it's very helpful to demonstrate it and show them an example or to swing a golf club, this is how you do it. You, you can't just tell them. It's, it's really helpful to have these examples so Stephen is a model for us to follow today. And my prayer is that as we read about his life, that we are inspired to be like him because he was like Jesus. We need these clear pictures, these examples, living examples of what a human being fully submitted to God looks like in day-to-day -day life. So we're, we're gonna look at the life of Stephen 
who was a, a servant leader in this early church. And my prayer is that we learn how to live and equally important, how to die from looking at the example of Stephen. And we're not gonna look at his whole life. We're really just gonna read about one day in Stephen's life, his last day on this earth. Stephen was one of those first deacons who was chosen to make sure that the Greek-speaking, uh, kind of marginalized people like the widows in the new church were being cared for, that they were receiving uh, enough food and, and money and resources to live. And that's my go-to text, Acts 6, 1 through 7, uh, for deacon ordination services, so I don't want to steal that thunder here today, so we're going to skip past that. It's clear that these early deacons weren't just table waiters. That's what the name implies, is that they were waiting on tables, but they have authority. They, they are preaching and teaching and leading in the church with authority, and that authority comes from the Holy Spirit in them, but also from being selected by the church body and then having the apostles come and lay hands on them and pray over them, which is why we do deacon election and ordination at Woodmont like that, the way we do it. That authority that comes through the ordained persons who lay their hands on our servant leader body. And things are going great in this, <coughs> excuse me, in this new church. <coughs> the deacons are doing their thing and the apostles are doing their thing and it's all working. And, and Stephen's right in the middle of it. Look at uh, verse eight in chapter six. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. It's, it's awesome to see who Stephen is. And I, I wanna show you some key character traits about Stephen. Who was he? What kind of person was he? Well, first off, we see that he's full of grace. Stephen was filled with God's grace. Grace is unearned, undeserved, unmerited, favor, gift, love of God. <clears throat> he was so full of the free gift of God's grace that it overflowed out of him and into the life of others. But there's more to that word. In, in pre-Christian times, the word charis, grace in Greek, also meant winsomeness and favor and kindness. Stephen was a winsome person whose personality was so charming to others, not because that was his natural personality, but God's grace in him made him a powerful advocate for the gospel. And Stephen was that kind of person. Verse eight also says that he was full of power. That's the second thing. He was full of supernatural power. It says he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. It wasn't that Stephen was particularly bright or well-educated or physically powerful. It was that he had a supernatural gift of God's power in him. It enabled him to do things that people ordinarily cannot do, these signs and wonders. And where does that amazing grace and where does that supernatural power come from? Skip back to verse five. Look at Acts 6, 5. This is the people of the church, what they said, please, the apostles told them to choose some deacons and that pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. That's the, the third point. He was full of faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the more I learn about this Christian life, the more I'm convinced that it must be lived by faith and not by sight. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate that. Little H2O. <laughs> 
Aaron. What a guy. The Christian life must be lived by faith, not by sight. Stephen was a man full of faith. He lived a life that wouldn't make sense to people on the outside because he was compelled by his faith, not by what he could see only. You know, as our sanctification grows, as our journey with Christ lengthens and deepens, as we become more like Christ, we realize not that we need Christ less, but that we need him more that we rely completely upon the grace of God expressed in Jesus Christ for each breath, for each word of conversation, for each relationship in our life, for our work, for our play, and for our worship. We need the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And that's an, uh, an act of faith. Oh, to have faith like Stephen's that compels us to do things that don't make sense maybe in the world's eyes. The fourth, and, and, you know, this, the fourth trait here is the most important one. It's the key to the other traits. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Stephen was filled now with this new expression of God in the Spirit. Acts 6.5, again, in, in verse 5 says he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was filled with God. You know, we here at Woodmont believe that when a person comes and they come to Christ for the first time in faith, they come by grace through faith in Christ, they surrender all that they are to him and submit to his lordship over them, that they die to themselves, that they're raised into a whole new kind of existence with Jesus, and that the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in their souls. That's what happens to Stephen. He's so full of God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells inside of him that he compels him to act as he does. And this is the key to the whole book of Acts. The whole new church is filled with God the Spirit, and not even the gates of hell can prevail against them. Remember when the the risen Christ appeared to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. What he told them was, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. That's the whole story, really, of the book of Acts. Great things are happening here in the early church. Look at verse 7. Skip back to Acts 6-7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests, the, the Levites, became obedient to the faith. Praise God to see these great things happening. And verse 8 again says that Stephen's right in the middle of it. But once again, the people who are in charge are threatened by what's happening. Their way of life is being objectively threatened by what is going on with this new movement. Look at verse 9. Some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen, that's the Greek Hellenistic synagogue, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. That's the fifth and and final trait in this biographical sketch of who Stephen was. He was filled with wisdom. The, The Greek leaders couldn't even hold their own against him because he was so full of wisdom. And wisdom is not the same thing as intelligence. It's not about being smart. It's not even about winning an argument. It's about having this divine insight and understanding, having a discernment that is supernatural and beyond book learning. This is a gift of God through the Spirit in 
Stephen. Again, the, the heads of the Greek synagogue aren't having it. They're not having any part of Stephen. They're blind to the truth, so they conspire against Stephen. Look at verse 11. They secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth <coughs> will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. How dare he change the customs? Again, they're so threatened by the way of life that Stephen is advocating for that they seek to destroy him. The leaders of the Hellenistic Greek-speaking synagogue bring these false accusations against Stephen to the Sanhedrin, which is the, the high court, the supreme court of all of Israel. And they know that they would sentence him to death without the slightest hesitation because he doesn't have this huge following that Jesus had. Remember, this is the same court only a few months prior to this that had convicted Jesus. They had the same high priest, Caiaphas, who's overseeing the, the proceedings here. They know Jesus, and they know that Stephen is a follower of this Jesus guy, and he's talking about destroying the temple, which of course is not true. Stephen may have been referencing what Jesus said, tear this temple down and in three days I will raise it up, which John chapter two tells us that Jesus was clearly talking about his own body, not the actual temple. But talking about the temple in that extreme kind of way was not only offensive to the religious feelings and beliefs of the Sanhedrin, it was offensive to their lifestyle. The whole economic structure of Jerusalem was rooted in the, the customs and practices and rituals of the temple. They knew that their whole way of life, their economy was being threatened by what Stephen was saying. But Stephen is so full of grace and so full of the Holy Spirit that even as they're bringing him before the Sanhedrin with these lies and these accusations, they look at him and they can tell something is different about him. Look at verse 15. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Something about him was transfigured because of Christ in him. I love how L.E. Brown says in his commentary, this is not the mild, gentle look that is often seen in paintings of angels, nor is it the fierce look of an avenging angel, but it's a look that told of inspiration within Clear eyes burning with the inner light. I love that. Then look at Caiaphas' uh, response. The next verse in chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest said, are these things so? Are these accusations true? He's probably looking for a simple yes or no. But what he gets is a lot more than that. The, the, the speech that follows is the longest sermon in the entire book of Acts. And Stephen, this this Greek-speaking, uneducated, Hellenistic outsider to the whole Jerusalem culture, he's about to give them a lesson in Old Testament theology that they would not soon forget. Stephen explains over the next 52 verses to these guys who are the cream of the crop, the, the highly educated, highly professional experts in the Hebrew scriptures, he gives them an overview 
of Abraham and the patriarchs and, and Joseph and, and Egypt. And then he talks about Moses, how he led God's people out of Egypt. And then he gave them the law at Sinai. And then eventually how Israel turned away from God over and over again with the prophets. Stephen knows his stuff. He knows his Bible. He knows his history. And now he's connecting the dots of all of that to how the gospel of Christ fulfills the law and the prophets perfectly as part of God's plan of salvation. He brings the theology of the gospel smashing down hard on all the, the false hopes that the, the popular Judaism of that day had been building their faith upon as really important. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I love cheeseburgers. I do. I think the quarantine 15 is real because I, I've eaten a lot of cheeseburgers over the last couple months. And, and recently, I had a friend just the last year who introduced me to the best burger in Nashville. You know what it is, Craig? You know what the best burger is? No? You know what the best burger is? No? I'll, I'll tell you. I've had some good ones. You know, Emmy Squared here in Green Hills has uh, La Big Mat. It's known as one of the best burgers in town. Jude and I split it. Uh, it was really good. It was. I like fancy burgers. I've had the burger at Husk uh, on 4th Avenue. It was, it was delectable. Uh, some people like the old school burgers like Rotiers. I've had the French bread burger. That's a classic. Brown's Diner, is, it's gross, but it's, <laughs> it's pretty tasty if you can handle it. Uh, I don't know how the health code had to shut that place down, but uh, it's tasty. I love it. Dive, dive bar, uh, you know, it's a great place. Brown's Diner. But the best burger in Nashville, by far, is Gabby's Burgers. Gabby's down by Greer Stadium is the best burger I've had in Nashville, and, and I'm a lifelong Nashville resident. And if you like burgers, I encourage you to go there. I've heard it said that sacred cows make the best burgers. Gourmet burgers come from sacred cows. The Jewish authorities in Jerusalem had built up these certain ideas that they had pulled out of context in their scriptures and they had turned them into false hopes, into sacred cows that were only worthy of being destroyed. In this sermon that Stephen gives, he obliterates three specific sacred cows that he finds that the leaders are teaching. The first sacred cow is the land, the land, the promised land. The idea that a lot of people had at that time was that God would bless them specifically because they resided within the boundaries of Palestine, the promised land. If they had real estate there, they were blessed. They were good with God. It was the promised land. It was the special inheritance from the Lord. So why would they need a savior? They were already blessed. They were already living in the promised land. They'd already been delivered from bondage and from their enemies, right? Why would they need Jesus? Not quite, not quite delivered yet, Stephen says. Look at verse two. He says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. God showed up to Abraham before he was living in the promised land. Abraham wasn't even a Jew. He was a pagan living in Ur of the Chaldeans. Stephen develops this idea further in verse four. Then Abraham went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land, which you are now living. Look at the next verse. We got one more? 
He, he put him in, out of Haran, and verse 5 says, yet he gave him no inheritance in it. He gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. Abraham never received any part of the promised land. He never owned real estate in Canaan, in Palestine. And yet the Lord blessed him greatly and made his descendants as numerous as the stars. It's not about the land. It's about following the Lord by faith that leads to blessing. So then in verses 9 to 16, Stephen goes on to show how Joseph was blessed, even though, where was he? Egypt. Verse 17 to 36, Stephen says that the Lord blessed Moses outside of the Holy Land. Moses was born and raised in Egypt. Then he grew up in Midian. He was commissioned by God as a prophet. Where? In the wilderness of Sinai. And he called the land there holy ground. Holy ground is wherever God chooses to show up and move in power. It's not just within the borders of the geography of Israel. The greatest miracles of Israel happen in Egypt. They happen at the Red Sea. They happen out in the wilderness. They happen uh, in all these places outside the promised land. Okay, one sacred cow down, two to go. The next cow was the veneration of Moses and the law. They exalted Moses and the law as the greatest prophet and the greatest gift ever. But the central hope of salvation wasn't in Moses. And Stephen makes this clear in verse 37. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 8, 18, 15. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Look for him. Listen to him. He's the one who's going to save you. You know, the, the power of the law was never a power to save. It only showed the people how far short they fell of God's standard of holiness and righteousness. The law never could make them righteous. It only showed them how unrighteous they were. Moses told them to look for the one who would come after him, the one who would deliver them from bondage and slavery. Two cows down. The third and final sacred cow that Stephen destroyed was the temple. Popular Judaism of the day said, God lives here. He dwells in the Holy of Holies. This is his house. We live next to God. He's our neighbor. We're good. What can anybody do to us? We're fine. But Stephen dismantles this false security in verses 48 to 50. He's quoting from Isaiah 66 here. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Do not my hand make all these things? He says that this is the place that, that I can choose to dwell everywhere because it's all mine. Boom, three cows down, gourmet burgers for everybody. Stephen showed the leading Jewish officials of that time how the land, the law, and the temple all fell short in the long run. He basically said, gentlemen, Sanhedrin, rulers of Israel, distinguished Sadducees and Pharisees, you, you think that you're in with God because you have the land, you have the law, and you have the temple. But it's not about those things. All those things are meant to point you to something so much bigger and beyond themselves that if you miss that thing, you're really in trouble. So what do these sacred cows have to do with us today? Well, as far as the land goes, a lot of people think that because they're a good citizen of a good nation, that they're a good person that they're going to heaven 
because they're part of the United States and God must bless them. You know, if you assume you're a good person because you live in a good nation, you're in trouble. The law, as far as the law goes, a lot of people have Bibles in their house, but they just collect dust. They don't delight in studying God's law. They don't delight in in letting God's law point them to Jesus and the gospel. And as far as the third cow goes, the temple, a lot of people believe that because they go to church, they must be right with God. You know, if, if anything, this pandemic has shown us that the church building is not as important as we thought it was. And I've said it before that just because you're in a church doesn't mean you're a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. Just because you're here doesn't mean you're a good person or that you're right with God. Only thing that makes us good is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's highly possible to live in a great land, to have God's commandments in your bedroom, in your possession, and to go to church regularly and still be pitifully and utterly lost. Stephen drives this point home in verses 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen tells the truth in love. They've sinned. They have sinned. They have trespassed the law and they need a savior. Stephen knew that by saying these things, he was signing his own death warrant. It was inevitable. But he stood firm and he said them anyway. How? Because he had been conformed to Christ and he counted his own life as a gift that was no longer his own. He'd been transformed by Christ and conformed to Christ. He lived like Christ, counting his own life as as nothing and laying it down for the sake of the gospel. He was full of the Holy Spirit like Jesus was. He'd spoken like Christ, a message of God's love and grace and salvation and justice. And he would now go on to die like Christ. Wrongfully accused, wrongfully convicted, and wrongfully killed. The Sanhedrin, you know, rather than feeling the prompting of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, they again resisted that prompting and they instead went on a rage Verse 54 says, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. They're in a murderous rage and we're about to have the church's first martyr here. The first example of a saint who demonstrated that his love for Christ far outweighed his love for his own life. And verse 57 and 59 tell the story. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. These highly dignified, educated leaders of Israel drag Stephen outside the city walls, tie his hands, tie his feet together, and throw him down an embankment, and they hurl heavy stones on top of him until he's dead. 
while the, the crowds of onlookers throw whatever rocks they can find in order to expedite his death. It's a brutal scene. It's a terrible scene. Yet even in the midst of this terrible occasion, violent, unjust occasion, we see glimpses of beauty. There's a beautiful verse in verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven as he's being stoned and saw the glory of God. Saw the glory of God. You used to die for that. He got to see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What does the scripture tell us about, about what Christ did when he ascended into heaven? He sat down at the right hand of God the Father, having accomplished the work of salvation that he came to do. But here we see that he stands. Why does he stand? He stands to welcome in the church's first martyr with open arms who would soon arrive at, at the throne of grace and mercy to be fully known and to know in full. You know, Stephen lived like Christ. He spoke like Christ. That conformed to Christ's slide, Travis, and he died like Christ, even down to the, the part of surrendering his own spirit. And then look at verse 60 as well. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We spend a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy focused on living well, and, and that's a good thing. We should learn how to live well. But do we ever think about dying well? Maybe that's a morbid thought. Maybe we don't want to think about that. In our culture, death is not something we talk about very much anymore. Death has become very privatized. It used to be very public. But, but it's important to think about living well and dying well as well. As a pastor, I've had the honor of being present several times in that moment when a soul transitions from this life into the next. It's a powerful, amazing, sacred moment. And it's made me often wonder, how will I face my own death? Will I come full of fear, full of regret, or will I come full of grace, full of hope, and full of love, ready to experience my rest with the other saints? What example can I set not only with my life, but with my death as well? It's important to think about these things. You never know who's watching. Here in Acts chapter seven, a young man named Saul is watching. He's watching over the cloaks. It's hard work stoning somebody so the guys take their cloaks off and Saul keeps watch over them. What impact does watching Stephen's death have on Saul? We're gonna see that over the next few weeks, the next few months as we continue to read the book of Acts. Are you conformed to Christ today? Do you live like Christ? Do you speak like Christ? And will you die like Christ? Saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Even when they unjustly accuse you, convict you, and persecute you even unto death. Are you relying on sacred cows that have no power to save in the long run? How you answer that question will make all the difference in how you live and in how you die. I said it before, the Christian life is to be lived by faith, not by sight. And we know that, that the more we grow in our faith, 
the more that we need Christ every hour. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you in this moment fully aware that it's only by your grace that we have come to this place in our lives. God, it's only by grace that we're able to be saved from our own sins and trespasses, for we have trespassed your law and we've broken your commandments. We are more broken and flawed than we ever could imagine. But by your grace, we are also more loved and more accepted than we ever dared to dream. God, I pray that this morning you would help us to buy in further to that life of discipleship in order that we may be conformed to your holy image because we believe that's where flourishing and life is found both in this life and the next. By your resurrection power and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us, we are able to live the abundant life and to advance your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. God, we've seen so much injustice around us. We grieve and we lament in our country how the divisions of race and inequality continue to run rampant and that our enemy would use those things to divide your people on a, on a daily, constant basis, that technology only exacerbates the divisions that we've seen in this country. Lord, we pray for unity among your people, that we would be one people who work together to bring justice to those on the margins of society, to the poor, to the needy, to those who have been mistreated and abused and neglected systemically for centuries. And God, I pray that we would do so because we're conformed to your image, come what may, that we would be recklessly obedient to you. We pray these things in the high and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We need Christ every hour. I pray that as we sing this song, that you will pray that in your heart. I need thee every hour. Christ, I can't do it on my own. I need you not just every day, not every week, not every month, but every hour I need you. Will you pray this prayer of submission as we sing this song of response together? If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, never surrendered to him for the first time, there's no better time to do so than right now. I know the phones are being taken care of right now. Call 615-297-5303 and talk with someone. Maybe you just need to pray with somebody. Call the number, pray, go to our website, fill out a connection card, pray, give us our prayer request and we'll pray for you and reach out to you. How can we be a family of faith to you during these difficult times? Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, don't hesitate to make that step of faith as you follow Jesus with a reckless obedience.